learned that can strengthen relationships is this issue of kindness. They have a website that you'll be hearing about, uh, at least in the adult Sunday schools, and I hope the youth as well. You can go out to the 30-day kindness challenge on their website. At the top, you can see different headers about the challenge, the book, and, and things like that. But there's an assessment link. And when you click on that assessment link, at the bottom left, there's a kindness quotient assessment. Just some real simple questions to answer to kind of get a gauge, a baseline on where are you currently in being a kind person. I took it yesterday. I started the 30-day challenge on my own to get in there and, and see what it was like and to be a part of it. Took this assessment, and I expected to score relatively okay and scored a 27 out of 50. I didn't score so good. Didn't even realize that there are factors in my own life that maybe has happened over the last few years, maybe the intensity of our culture, the things of life, that maybe have robbed us of the spirit of kindness. Take the assessment. See how your score turns out. See if you beat the pastor score. See what you can do. And encourage other people to get in on this, not just those at PCBC, your friends, classmates, anybody. And I dare you to sign up for the next 30 days, the 30-day challenge. Now, why? Why do we need to focus on the issue of kindness? Well, I'm going to take you through Scripture, and I'm going to see why we have the challenge and the challenge that Scripture gives us. As I said earlier, we are now living in a culture of rudeness, self-seeking, self-promotion, and self-centeredness. We now find through this social media age, this outspoken cruelty in our conversations and the way we talk to one another. Even at the latest State of the Union address, as President Biden was sharing things we may not agree with, you may agree with, or may not agree with. As certain things were said during that speech, it was amazing to me at people who would stand up whether you agree or disagree and some of the hateful rhetoric that was expressed in that moment now it's okay to disagree but it's not okay to be rude or cruel no matter the person no matter the situation but that's where we live now it's the norm to be cruel and not kind jesus was questioned by some cruel people by the way uh, the cruel people of jesus day no different than the cruel people of our day. Uh, it's pretty fascinating. If you go back and you study the Gospels, you'll find the people that were the most cruel were religious people. People who claimed to be living for God, but were more cruel than others in their city. That can happen in our day, in our age as well. And so they are trying to set up Jesus, and they ask a question, what is the greatest commandment? You remember what Jesus said? Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And we get that. The most important thing is God. Where we stand with God and have a relationship with God, that's primary. But then Jesus said something pretty fascinating. Probably something they weren't ready for, probably something you're not ready for, but listen to what Jesus said. He said, and the second is like the first, they are, they are one and the same. Not only is it the most important thing that you love God, but it's also most important that you love other people. That you love, he didn't say yourself, he said that you love your, work with me, love your who? Your neighbor like yourself. They're the same. You wouldn't think, you would think God's here and others are there, barely. Jesus said, no, if you want to experience an abundant life, you'll love God and you'll love your neighbor. So they spoke up and 
maybe it's a question you have in your mind. So what does that mean, love my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? That's the question they asked. Jesus answered the question. Do you remember how Jesus, you remember what his answer was? He says, you want to know who your neighbor is? Here it is. And he told a story. It was a story of the Good Samaritan. And it blew them away. Because if I asked you to turn to your neighbor and say something, matter of fact, do that. Turn to your neighbor right now and say something kind to him. Try it. Practice right now. Say something kind to your neighbor. Ready? Go. <laughs> that was so kind. Work to be done. Take the 30-day challenge. Here we go. Let me back up the train. It's funny, when I said turn to your neighbor, you immediately turn somewhere. You immediately assume that word neighbor means a person sitting next to me or within my vicinity. And that's part of the definition of a neighbor, but Jesus widened the definition. He said, let me tell you who a neighbor is. And he told a story about three different individuals walking down a road, and each one of them discovered somebody who had a big-time need. This guy had been robbed and beaten. It was a very dangerous road. Shouldn't even been on the road, but he was, and he was beaten to a pulp and left for dead in a ditch. Three people walked by. A religious guy, a religious leader guy, and a Samaritan told you before, Samaritans were considered the lowest of the low on the chain in that social realm. Uh, they were considered the most vile and most prejudiced group on the planet. They were half-breeds. They were no good. They had sold out the seed of Abraham, and they were looked down on more than any other people group in that part of the world. And Jesus talked about all three had the same opportunity. All three of them came across their neighbor who had a need and only one stopped and only one met the need. Oh, there were others that came by and I'll pray for them. Acted all spiritual about it, but they didn't love their neighbor. And Jesus asked him after he told about the three different people, he said, which one of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And they responded, the one who showed mercy towards him. And Jesus said to them, then go and do the same. When Jesus explained who a neighbor was, it wasn't just somebody who lives by us, looks like us, goes to school with us, somebody we hang out with, or somebody we live by. Your neighbor is anybody you encounter in this world that has a need. And we all have needs. We're all hurting. And we're all struggling. Instead of just going by on our own way, instead of being busy with our agenda and our day, we need to stop and we need to love God by loving people where they are and showing acts of kindness, living a testimony of kindness. The one who shows mercy, compassion, and kindness is the one that honors God and loves their neighbor. So if we broke out another list and said, who have you been loving on? who's the neighbor you've been serving, would you have anybody to put on that list? I think we could all agree we need to get back to this way of loving God, the greatest commandment. So let me show you what Scripture says about it. If you have your Bibles, go to Galatians now. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22. You see, kindness doesn't come naturally. What comes naturally is what you naturally see 
through most social media outlets and through the conversations we have, whether it's through our text, our post, or even our conversations. That's what comes naturally to us is to be unkind. And so Paul is equipping believers and reminding them it isn't natural to be kind, it is supernatural. Take a look at it. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, some of you probably have the next word marked out, patience, but don't mark it out, it's there. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Don't lose that middle word there. Don't lose that word kindness. Paul said the fruit of a life that is controlled by the Spirit of God is a life that, yes, is peaceful and joyful. They're loving, but they are kind. It is a result of a spirit spiritual filling of God who lives in us now living through us. That Greek word for kindness literally means, listen to this definition, it is a spirit-produced goodness which meets someone else's need instead of providing harshness. It is a spirit-initiated response to a person's need. Naturally, we would normally be harsh or cruel or insensitive, but because the Spirit of God lives in us, we respond with kindness. That's a Spirit-filled life. Paul had to learn that. As a religious man growing up, he was very religious. Remember I told you religious people can be some of the most cruel people on the planet? It didn't get more cruel than Saul of Tarsus. That's who he was before he got saved, before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. You talk about cruel, in God's name he was having people killed because he thought they were living a false cult called Christianity. He was cruel. And he did it in the name of God. And then he finds Christ on the road to Damascus. And all of a sudden he learned the difference between religion and what it means to be a Christ follower. Instead of it being a bunch of rules and a bunch of do's and don'ts that lead to a cruel, harsh response, he learned what he quoted in Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who lives. He said, I don't live for God anymore. I don't try to live to please God. I don't do those. He said, instead, I no longer live, but I let Christ live through me. It's a crucified life. He learned that when you are filled with the Spirit, you will be loving, you will be joyful, you will be peaceful, you will be patient, you will be kind, and you will be good. So when I'm not those things, when I struggle to be loving, when I'm not kind, you know what that tells me? It tells me I'm alive instead of Christ alive in me. It tells me I'm full of me instead of full of him. There's your barometer. So let me ask you, are you full of you or are you full of the Holy Spirit? Kindness is the fruit of the Spirit. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29. So Paul now again teaching another group of believers See, he had to address the issue of kindness with them just like we are for the next 30 days. Why? Because it is not natural to be kind. It's much easier to be cruel. It's much easier to be unkind. And so Paul says to them, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. How many have already failed the test? We haven't even been awake for three or four hours. Some of you aren't awake right now. We've already failed the test. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word which is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. 
Now look at verse 30. Underline the next phrase. And so Paul says to them, quit being unkind. And he says this next thing. Look at this. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Do you understand that one of the ways we grieve the Holy Spirit? Two ways. We don't love God and we don't love our neighbor. And the enemy who would love to attack you attacks you on both fronts. He'll first try to attack your love relationship with God, and then he's going to attack your ability to love other people. Because that's the greatest commandment. And if he can keep you from living in the will of God, he wins the war. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you. It says, get rid of it. Don't let it live in your life. And how many of us let us let those things live in our story? You say, but Bill, you don't know what I've experienced. You don't know how they've treated me. You don't know what I've been through. I get it. He wasn't saying those things aren't real. He just says, put it away from you. Don't embrace it. Don't bring it in. Reject it. And here's the answer. Take a look at it. Verse 32. Instead, instead, be kind to one another. Be tenderhearted. Forgive each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. You have a choice. You can live naturally or you can live supernaturally. Students, you can be a generation that lives just like your peers or you can live differently. You can choose to live differently. I pray that you would be a generation, that we would be people with tender hearts, that we would be known for our kindness, not our radical religiosity that boycotts and protests and throws stones, but that we would demonstrate the loving kindness of the God who has changed us. So I want to take you to the Old Testament. I want to show you one of the most beautiful pictures of living a life of kindness. It's found in the testimony of a guy named David. Now, we're not going to look at the story of David and Goliath. He wasn't real kind to Goliath, nor should he have been. But we are going to look at a time when he was kind to a guy named Mephibosheth. Have you ever heard the name Mephibosheth? Sounds like a Hebrew cuss word, doesn't it? Or maybe when I say Mephibosheth, you say Gesundheit. Maybe that is a weird, crazy name. Am I right? But when you think of that name from now on, you will think of one word. You will think of the word kindness. Let me tell you the story. If you don't know it, Mephibosheth was the son, the grandson, actually. He was the son of Jonathan. He was the grandson of the king, King Saul. There was a time in Israel's history they had been led out of Egypt by God. God was the one who led them. God continued to lead the people of God until they got to a point and they said, hey, hey, whoa, whoa, everybody else has a king. We want a king. What a crazy prayer request. They actually prayed government on their lives. Are you kidding me? How clueless do you have to be? We need more government. That'll solve it. Give us a king. So God gave them the desires of their heart. He says, is that what you think you need? Here you go. And they got King Saul. Oh, he passed all the tests. He was a warrior. He was strong. He was tall. He was bold. He was seasoned. And he looked like one of the best king candidates you could ever pick or find. And he became a failure in Israel's history. God would intervene after they had gotten what they asked for, and God would send out a prophet to anoint the next king of his people, and the prophet, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, 
discovered that God had handpicked a guy named David. David was God's choice. Saul was their choice. And if you understand governments of that day, the king and his throne was established as long as he had an heir to the throne. Jonathan was to be the next heir, the next king of Israel, according to the practice of the day. And God said, no, it won't be Jonathan. It's going to be my candidate, David. Well, how do you think Jonathan felt about that? Felt about that? You think he got excited about David? You think he loved the news of hearing, hey, you're not getting the throne. That guy over there is. If you study the story, it's powerful. It's a beautiful picture of a relationship between Jonathan and David. Not one that was cruel and harsh. You're not going to find Jonathan bitter or broken or disappointed. You know what you find in Jonathan? You find in Jonathan a rare person. You see, Jonathan cared more about pleasing God than he did about power on a throne. He cared more about what God desired than what he desired or even what his daddy desired because Saul didn't want to give up the throne. He wanted his boy to have it, and he was going to do anything he could, including taking out David so Jonathan had to be the next king. Do you know what Jonathan did? Jonathan embraced David as his very best friend. Matter of fact, if you go back and study, this relationship was so powerful and so unique, they became like true blood brothers. And even though they didn't come from the same mom and dad, they were closer than siblings. Matter of fact, the Bible describes their relationship that it was even closer than a husband and a wife. Some have tried to manipulate that passage and say, well, this justifies homosexuality because they had a love for each other that was even more intimate than a man with a woman. And that is a lie. It wasn't a homosexual relationship. It was a brotherly, powerful bond, a covenant between two men who became the best of friends. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm Jonathan, I don't know that I can be friends with a guy that's taken my place, my privilege, my opportunity. But Jonathan became David's best friend. Matter of fact, God raised up Jonathan to be there for David when David needed a friend unlike any other time in his life. It was the darkest season of his days. Jonathan's dad was trying to have him killed. He had to live in the wilderness, hide in caves for years before he actually became the king. He was all alone with no family, no friends, but Jonathan. Jonathan and him created such a great bond. And, and then we come to this season. It's recorded. You don't have to turn there. 1 Samuel 20. I'll put it up on the screen. It's there. It's, Jonathan finally comes to him and he realizes this is getting ugly. Matter of fact, he now has discovered his dad's heart is so evil and filled with evil and pride that he can't save his dad and he wonders if he can save David or his own life. And he knows that God's favor is on David. He knows David's going to be the next king. So he goes to David in that moment and he says, David, I ask you this one thing. What do you think he would ask for? Well, if he's going to be the next king... How about make me your vice president? How, how, about, how about securing your future? Hey, I know daddy's out. I'm going to hitch my wagon to the next king, and at least I got a government job. 
And then what he asked for, look what he asked for. But show me, David, unfailing kindness. What, what does this kindness look like? It's the kindness that had changed Jonathan's life. He said, I want that kind of loving kindness like the Lord's kindness. He's saying, I want you to be gracious to me like God has been gracious to me. I didn't deserve it. I couldn't earn it. God has given me his loving kindness. David, I'm asking you as my king that you would make that same commitment, that you would show me kindness. And not only that, look at the rest of it. And that that would be an unfailing kindness that would be demonstrated and never cut off even to my own family from generation to generation. David, I'm just asking for one thing. Be kind. Be kind. You see, I think that's the heart of each person's need. First of all, we need the loving kindness of God. We need a God who will forgive our sin. We need a God. We, we can't earn our way there. Let's get honest. But we can call out to a God who's known for his loving kindness. And out of that, in this world we live in, this world that is so cruel, so ugly, and so brutal, what we need more than anything else is for others to be kind. And if that's what we need, that's what we need to be to other people. So as we go through the story, years go by. David continues to have to hide out for his life. And then there comes a day where there was a battle when King Saul died. But so did Jonathan. Jonathan also died at battle that day. He was a part of his father's army. He continued to show up for battle on behalf of his people, and he died. And when they heard the news, David didn't know that Jonathan had a child. They'd lost touch through that separation. But now there was a child named Mephibosheth. He was the son of Jonathan. He was the now rightful successor to the throne. The nursemaid knew that this five-year-old child couldn't protect himself, couldn't defend himself, and that his life was at danger. So she gathered him up, she tried to take him away to safety, and along the way, we don't know what happened, but there was some kind of accident. She drops this child, and five years old seems a little old to me, but whatever the situation was, she broke both of his legs and he would never recover and would be crippled for the rest of his life. David would take the throne of Israel. He would continue to rule and reign. He has no idea. He knows Saul's dead, Jonathan's dead. He just assumes that the rest of that lineage is dead, but he does at one point remember his covenant he made with Jonathan. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. David didn't change because his position changed. David didn't change the covenant because Jonathan was no longer alive. He stayed true to the covenant. That's a man of integrity. It would have been very easy for him to justify and say, well, I know I made a promise, but Jonathan's no longer alive. Uh, he probably doesn't have any descendants, so I know this. Saul was an evil man, and there's no way I'm honoring that covenant to any of Saul's descendants. They will just rise up, and they will seek a rebellion and try to rob my throne. And so he could have done what all other kings did in those days, wipe out all the ancestors of the previous king, but not David. 
that David said, is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul? He didn't say the house of Jonathan. He said the house of Saul. Isn't that interesting? He was willing to keep the commitment even through the lineage of Saul. He didn't know Jonathan had a descendant. But he was going to be a covenant-keeping man of integrity. And so he asked the question. He didn't have to ask it. He could have just moved on. And why did he ask the question? He said, so that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. He didn't say I'm a servant of Saul's. He says, I'm your servant, David. The king said, is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of of God. Take a look at verse 3. Look at how David was living. Is there anyone, is there anyone that I can show the loving kindness of God? He wasn't trying to be a good old boy. He wasn't trying to create political points. He was trying to live out a godly life that brought glory to God by demonstrating loving kindness, the same loving kindness he got from God. He said, yes, there is. There is a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. So I read that, I wonder, why did he just not say, yeah, there's a son of Jonathan? I think he threw that in, he's crippled in both feet, maybe to soften the blow and to say to David, but you don't have to be worried. He's crippled. He can't come for your throne. He's not going to be a threat, but there is one. It didn't change David's reaction. It didn't change his heart. So in verse 6, we find the name Mephibosheth. It is Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, who came to David, and he fell on his face, and he prostrated himself there. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he said, here is your servant. David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you. That's the beautiful thing about David. David didn't pull a king card on him and say, hey, dude, sorry, you know how this thing goes. You happen to be born into the wrong family. Off with your head. He said, dude, I want to show you kindness. David modeled for the kingdom and for his people what it looks like to love God and to love his neighbor. And in that moment, he led well. He was a covenant-keeping follower of God. Are you? Would you be willing to take that challenge and say for the next 30 days... Like David, I'm going to show kindness to somebody, I hope more than one. I will be that kind of follower of Christ. He said, I want to show kindness to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Jonathan, I will restore to you all the land of your grandfather, Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. Verse 8, Mephibosheth says, what is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me. This is powerful. In that moment when David is meeting the need of Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth has drawn a conclusion. I'm, I'm a nobody. I'm a cripple. I have nothing to offer anybody. I'm, I'm, I'm the equivalent of a dead, not just a dog, a dead dog. That's what he was believing. And there's some people in your life right now that Satan is lying to. He's crippling them and convincing them that they have no value, 
that nobody cares, that nobody loves them. As a matter of fact, they're being told that every day, maybe even by their own parents or their own boss and certainly the enemy of their soul. And they consider themselves a dead dog. They need a David in their life. They need you. They need the love of their neighbor. I want you to notice what David did very quickly as we break it down. I want you to see the need for kindness. He had a great need. He'd given up on life. He'd given up on his future. He'd drawn the conclusion that he was no better than a dead dog. And God used David just like God used Jonathan earlier in David's life. When David needed it, when he felt like a hunted dog, when he felt like he had no hope to move on another day, there was Jonathan to show him the loving kindness of God. And now it was David's turn. I would say to each person in this room, it's your turn. It's your turn to be a David. It's your turn to demonstrate God's love through the way you love other people. But notice this. He just didn't give him some stuff. He just didn't invite him to the palace for a day. He said, and you will eat at my table regularly, often. Your daddy was my best friend. He was my brother. That makes you family. And he took him in as his own son. You see, kindness is not just doing an act. It's not just living an extra tip at the lunch that you're about to have. That's kind. Do it. But do it regularly. But not only that, not only do we proactively give kindness, we have to reactively give kindness as well. It's easy to do one day of kindness. It's different to do that kindness regularly, ongoing, daily. It wasn't just Thanksgiving that Mephibosheth got to come to the king's table. It was regularly. As often as he pulled the table together, there he was with the rest of the family because he was now family. He invited him to the table. Who are you inviting to the table? Who are you inviting into your time, your world, your space? It's more than just an act of kindness. It's a way of living. It is proactive and it is reactive. You see, David proactively sought out Mephibosheth and then reactively, he didn't react like other kings. He still showed love to Saul's grandson. That isn't natural, but it is God. And it's also a beautiful picture of the gospel. There's not a better picture in all of scripture of the gospel than Mephibosheth. You see, we, like Mephibosheth, we've been crippled by our sin. In front of a holy God, we are unholy and crippled by our sin. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All are crippled. But God in his loving kindness, when we didn't deserve it, God showed up in the form of Jesus on this planet, walked a perfect life all the way to a cross, and died for your sin. That's God meeting your and my need with loving kindness. And that same God will give you the gift of eternal life and also the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that we're saved not because of what we do, but we receive forgiveness as a gift. It's God's grace. And He lovingly gives you and offers that to everyone in this room. 
But when you receive that gift of God's grace, you will also receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, as you respond to his loving kindness, all of a sudden that loving kindness now lives in you. If you'll let it. Let's pray about it. With every head bowed and every eye closed. Will you let it? Will you let it happen? Will you let the loving kindness of God change your life? If you've never been saved, call on the loving kindness of God this morning. And if you have, if you have experienced the loving kindness of God through repentance, you've received him as your Savior, then you may need to pray and say, God, but today fill me with your spirit. God, I need to be more kind. I can't do it, but you can through me. God, I give you my surrendered life. Is that your prayer? I don't know what it is. I don't know what commitments have been made over Disciple Now weekend or Crash weekend, but maybe you need to come. I know you've already confessed it among you. We'd love to celebrate. If you made a decision for Christ, Hunter and Braden and maybe some other adult leaders will be here. Our staff will be here. We want to hear what God did in your life this weekend. But to mom and dad and others in the space, God wants to work in your life. We you let him? Lord, be honored in these moments as we give you the glory. As we give you our lives, fill us with your spirit. For we ask it in Jesus' name.